Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy, and Rafael Nadal has taken the lead, his 21st major title over Daniil Medvedev at the 2022 Australian Open, coming back from down two sets to love, second Australian Open title, double career Grand Slam for Rafa as well now. And I'm sure we all uh, just have something that we want to get off our chest right off the bat for this match. So let's just take turns here to start before we get into the, the deeper analysis of it. I mean, I'm blown away by the, the never quit. When you think about all the reasons that where Rafael Nadal could have laid down, being down two sets to love, being 0-4 in his last four Australian Open finals, uh, coming back from six months off the tour, getting COVID two weeks before going to Australia, and then having Daniil Medvedev on the other side of the net and losing serve, serving for the match again in a final, just like 2012, just like 2017. And he just goes right back to it. I mean, it's just, there's no giving up. He's just going to compete. That's pretty much incredible. It was an incredible effort from Nadal. Just, uh, I mean, we've seen this again and again. There's uh, one phrase I like, Ralph Waldo Emerson, not Roy Emerson, says, if you strike at a king, you must kill him. And he didn't. And Nadal, Nadal's everything from the will, from the problem solving, from the innovation. I, I like the fact, one thing, and we'll, I mean, we're kind of just going a little big picture now, but one thing, I love the fact that the match point was Nadal coming to net and hitting a backhand volley right out of Rod Laver's playbook. That's like a great play. And it speaks to the engagement, not the engagement, but the education of Nadal as a tennis player, the way he's continually looking to get better. And then also, what an incredible month. As you said, Gil, it began, he was recovering from COVID. Novak was the odds-on favorite. And now look at all these things. So we can, we can dive into the match. But again, Nadal, how does this guy simultaneously impress us, delight us, and surprise us. He called it his most, uh, his most unexpected achievement. Well, when I think back on the greatest tennis matches of all time, this is probably on that list. And what's remarkable is that Nadal has played in many of those. And he truly is one of the greatest of all time. He has now won at the age of 35 on his worst surface at his worst slam against someone who crushed one of the other greatest of all time at the U.S. Open just a few short months ago. And it really is a story of resilience because um, he was hurt, you know, and, and he was down and he's 35 years old. The, the age is just this this cloud, if you will, that's just hanging, constantly hanging over everyone in this sport. And, and it's always a topic of discussion. 
And Nadal was such a huge underdog in this match. Almost nobody was picking him to win. And that includes the odds makers, um, the experts, very few. If you looked really hard, you could find someone who, who would say that he would win in five, which, which is exactly what happened. So um, he's, he's one of the greatest of all time. And yet he was an underdog in this match, which to me is remarkable. And um, he showed him. Well, the interesting thing also, I mean, we were talking about this 35-year-old, this is the last test of the prior year, doesn't know he's ever going to play again, seated lower than usual, down, down in a tough way in the final versus a pretty good opponent. That was Federer five years ago. Mm -hmm. That was Roger. And now it's And all these things, I mean, all the things, and I think we were talking about this, the, uh, the tangible, I think, favored Medvedev. You know, the X's and O's, the cognitive analysis. And I was in that, I, I wasn't, I, you know, as you know, I'm not so much of a pick guy, but I was, um, so you see that from Medvedev. And then you get the intangibles. And again, the doubt, and that's part of sports too. That's part of the things we like about sports is that it can surprise you without hurting you. I've never seen such a physical turnaround in a match because it looked like Medvedev had much more leg than Nadal for the first two sets. Medvedev was winning the long rallies. A lot of those long rallies were ending in Rafael Nadal unforced errors. And Medvedev looked like, like he was willing to just keep going and going and going, keep the ball deep, uh, sometimes trading very slow, keeping the ball deep in the court, just going to Nadal's backhand over and over again, just saying, you can't really hurt me on that side. So I'm just going to lengthen and lengthen these rallies, returning every single Rafael Nadal serve. Suddenly at some point, and maybe it wasn't sudden, maybe it was just a slow kind of change and the tables turned and Nadal had the legs and Medvedev didn't. How can we explain what, what happened there? Well, Gil, we called that one. I mean, I have to say at the, at the uh, end of our last podcast that was previewing this match, we asked the question, you know, how does somebody 35 years old have the legs to hang with somebody 10 years younger? And I said, that's a trap, remember? And I said, what happens with our big three is that these younger guys, they think, oh, I'm younger. I, I got better legs and better lungs. And then they find themselves in the fourth set or the fifth set, and they're the ones that don't have the legs or the lungs. And that's pretty much how this played out. Although I will say that to me, it was kind of like three matches in one. There was the first match that Medvedev won kind of barely because Nadal did not take his his advantage of of his opportunities in the second set and then the second match Nadal won in straight sets fairly convincingly and then the third match was the fifth set and uh, that's where where the the legs and the physicality and the um, the conditioning and the fitness really came into play I like that I like that kind of three-act play I think there's a there's a tennis wonky aspect to this that's really interesting as there always is in a match and I think it's important to learn where you can hit the ball and the guy won't hurt you and I think what Nadal really exposed here and we saw it repeatedly in this match particularly if you really zero in two three love 40 and Nadal is knowing he's knowing that Medvedev is not so comfortable moving forward really isn't that comfortable moving forward I mean it's one thing to move forward and hit a winner 
but I mean moving forward to approach. And if you know that, in that game, Nadal at 2-3, Love 40 hits a drop shot because Medvedev tends to hang back more. At 15-40, Medvedev doesn't take advantage of, a, of an opportunity to move forward because, again, Medvedev is not, is not a believer in his volleys. And we all know it's, it's amazing how every tennis player, even these guys at the very top of the, of the game, know they're not quite ready to do the thing that they're not as comfortable doing. And then at 30-40, Medvedev hits a drop shot. In comes Rafa to cover it. But Medvedev is completely awkward, trapped in no man's land and tries to swing volley. And I think, I think Nadal was probably already aware of that. But then he's got that kind of like amplified it. Wow, look at this. And then I think he knew, oh, I can defend comfortably now. Mm -hmm. I can defend comfortably. I can extend the rally because he's not that opportunistic, Medvedev. And his forward moving game really eroded now Nadal okay now we're now we're back here I'm just going to play some good defense and then I'll take charge of the points and you see Nadal was by far more tactically dynamic as the match went on and early on he was trying things I mean I'm sure we were both looking at the at Twitter and seeing comments why is he slicing his backhand what's this what's that so um but I think Nadal it's like you got to be kind of um, a safe cracker you're like turning the thing and turning and turning and seeing what's going to finally work and Nadal I think like you talk about legs, Amy, I totally agree with you. And it becomes legs and then skill because then Medvedev feels he has to go for winners. Now he feels his way to win points is to try to hit winners. And that's not a good way to beat anyone, much less Nadal. Well, Medvedev doesn't have the skill set to shorten points. So as soon as his legs told him, you need to shorten points, Daniil against Rafa and Nadal's defense and Nadal's counterattacking, Medvedev went, you know, to hit drop shots. He didn't play them well. They were bad drop shots in generally speaking, and Nadal was on them. Nadal's anticipation was really, really awesome. When Medvedev was uh, getting midcourt balls that he was trying to finish an attack, Nadal was kind of reading it and, and hurting Medvedev, turning defense into offense very regularly. So it, it was almost like, it was almost like Medvedev's plan A worked, but then when the legs were going and plan A was, by the way, based on physicality and outlasting, once that was gone, it was, I don't have the volleys. I don't have the midcourt game. I can't finish the points. And, and he looked a little bit lost until the fifth set. As Amy said, things got a little bit more even in the fifth again. Yeah. And for me, tennis is divided into those classic four categories, technical, tactical, physical, mental. And I tend to see, I'm a little biased, I tend to see the game a little more toward the tactical and the mental, um, because I think there's a range of techniques that will work for you. And certainly Daniel Medvedev is, is, proves that with his forehand that's a little bit unconventional. Um, so for me, it's usually technical and, and mental, and certainly this match was mental, but this one really went toward the physical more. And, you know, when I look at body types as a tennis player, I tend to think that, you know, Novak and, and Roger, a real lean body type that doesn't have a lot of bicep or a lot of muscle in the legs might be the ideal, but I think Rafa showed us that you know, when it's deep in a match, in a five set match, and you have to have the balance and you have to have the legs to run in and, and hit a short ball and, and get in that classic position or, or 
put your body down low to, to grab a volley. He just had that more. And Danil, who's, who's built more super lean, he just flailed. He flailed, his arms were flailing, and he just didn't have that tightness and that really overall fitness that, um, that I think this, this match was just so unusual in that way. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand to that or whatever. I'm going to say that um, I think it was the tactical that drives the physical because it's not, it's not Medvedev's body type that makes him a bad volleyer. It's his volley technique. I mean, so it's this whole circle of skills. And in a way, he got – I'll be curious to see what he learned. And we're going to get into his, um, his post-match emotions, which are justifiable in the wake of such a tough loss. But then it becomes the lesson. And I think one of the things that we so relish about these three is, you know, they have their wins, they have their losses, and then they go back and do their work. And then they take away, you take away the emotional. I mean, I wrote this about Ash Barty yesterday too, because she's so good at this. You take away the emotional. Oh, I lost. This happened. And then, okay, what I got to work on to be better. And look at how Nadal has done that over the course of his career. Uh, I need to be a better volleyer if I want to win Wimbledon. I need to be comfortable in that part of the court. And I think so Medvedev got kind of an eye-opening experience in, in court geography and court management and time and space. And then it becomes execution. So if you're not comfortable there, then your physicality, you know, and you got and you don't have the physical, it's all it's all starting to disintegrate on you. I mean, there's some shots Medvedev missed up there that we would have made. Right. And again, I can't choose one physical or tactical because I think the physical went and then he didn't have the tactical to make up for. Exactly. It's a, it is a circle, but I also think there's two different kinds of stamina. There is, I'm coming into a match. It's the first set. I'm fresh. Can I play this 25 ball rally? Can I play this 40 ball rally? And then there's, can I still have my legs in four hours? And I don't, you know, I'm not a, a, I'm not a physio, right? So I don't know the science behind it, but that's that's two different things, right? And I think in Daniil Medvedev's career, we've seen that he is a, an endurance monster. His shot tolerance is incredible. When he's in the mood to really play long points, long busting points, and to just kind of stick with it and not let the shot tolerance go anywhere, he's very good at that. But we, we've also seen him physically wear down at the end of matches. We've seen him, you know, he has a, a losing record in five setters. We've seen him have cramping issues, including in a, in a match against uh, Andre Rublev a little while ago. So you do wonder, are those two different things? Yeah, they are. And he still has not in his career, unbelievably, even as a Grand Slam champion, he still has not won that many five set matches. So, um, you know, when he beat Djokovic so badly, he won in straights. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So um, part of this, though, Gil, is, is something that we talked about a couple of shows ago that has really got me thinking. And we were talking about how Nadal's preparation had to have been diminished because he was off the court for so many weeks and months and had not played. And, and then separately, in a separate conversation, we talked about how much Medvedev and Rublev had been playing and how their offseason was incredibly short, three weeks, if that. Mm -hmm. So now I'm starting to wonder about a point of diminishing returns and if the time off the court actually has a preserving effect. It, It may, if you've won 20 majors and have kind of like occupied this territory. I mean, this thing, I remember, uh, covering one of Tsitsipas' first five set matches at Wimbledon a few years ago. And it's entering into this whole other space and place and whole other thing. And it's true probably in all sports, whether it's the seventh game of the American Baseball World Series or, or Super Bowl. And, and Nadal is familiar with that. So you can, you know, that whole circle of the, of the legs and the body and the mind. And Nadal's, oh, I know this. I know this place. And Nadal, of course, it's also a little jittery for him in Australia. That's what makes this, uh, this win so satisfying for him and kind of the world because we know Rafa, I mean, it's funny you say it is, I guess it is his worst slam, but it is one he's been to the finals of five times, but he's had previously, but he's had heartbreak there and he's aware of that too. And he's, and he's human and he's surrendering his service break in the fifth set, but, but he does know that area. He does know that area. I mean, this is the guy who won a Wimbledon final after after possibly blowing a two sets to love lead. So where's Medvedev? You know, Medvedev, even though he's won a major and he's still, he's still lower division. He's still lower division. Rafa's a big, Rafa's postdoctoral. I mean, Rafa's been so many times in this place and that doesn't mean it's easy, but at least it's familiar. It comes back to the, the age point. And what we've seen time and time again, to, to your point, Amy, is that there's this this notion that has so often been untrue about the younger player is going to last longer because they're younger. But what we really see is the older player has had X amount of time to develop these skills that the younger player hasn't had and they need. Like how much better are Medvedev's volleys going to be in, in 10 years, potentially? Well, Well, that's up to Medvedev. I, I I know, but I'm not saying it's guaranteed. And, you know, he might be retired okay. in 10 years, right? Well, yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's an interesting thing. And it's, it'd be interesting, for example, to go back, go back way back to the early losses of these guys, of our three, 
and to see some of the things they would have said in the wake of those losses about their need to just kind of get back to it, you know, their relentless dedication. And that's, and maybe it's also, look, they were all, each of them was a top three player pretty much by the time he was 20, 21 years old. So they were sent pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and how many times have our lovely, wonderful fans, viewers, and listeners said to us, you guys picked the wrong time to do this show because these guys are almost over. Well, that was like, what, two or three years ago? I mean, they're not, they haven't been. These have been a wonderful two years um, and, and very um, successful two years for our big three. So um, one thing that was interesting to me along those same lines is how Nadal managed his energy in the final three sets. I saw him not run for a couple of balls, which I have never seen him do. But you know what? It was strategic and it was smart. And I think as they get older, they do learn um, when to put it out there and how to manage that and when to pull back. Well, Great point. Certain points where, you know, there's the whole thing about shortening points. And, I, and I, you know, and again, we we're talking about uh, Medvedev and the long rallies. Yeah, long rallies against a guy who, who's not really trying to do things to him. And you just see, it'd be interesting to look at this match and see the many ways Nadal went about building points and the many kind of looks he threw at him, the cross court for him, and sometimes the slice back. And then again, he wasn't sure what was going to work and he had to do all sorts of these things. And he also though knew, they knew the, the it wasn't a secret anymore. Guess what, Medvedev, when I, you're, not, you're not taking advantage of kind of these quasi short balls. You think you have to hit a winner. And that becomes its own form of, of, the decay. That's not, you know, because you see how many times Medvedev started to overhit, you know, vaguely transitional balls, balls that if he was comfortable moving forward, he wouldn't have felt the need to try to hit winners on. Yeah. And the harder he hit, especially from an advanced court position, the less he could cover the court because, right. you know, the ball was coming fast at, at Nadal. Medvedev suddenly wasn't recovering because the, you take away that time and Nadal again was just countering so well and, and whether it be passing shots or, or, or whatever it, it would be. And then you had also a lot of, a lot of plays that were point shortening that I think weren't taking a toll on Nadal's legs serve plus drop shot. That wasn't a change up. That was a regular, regular tactic for, for Rafa uh, serve, first ball approach, these things were, were put into place. And I think the forehand as a weapon, regardless of if Nadal was a little bit tired or not, he was able to implement that where I think with Medvedev, the serve just wasn't as good when his, when he started to lose it in the legs, he got a second wind in the fifth set. But I mean, Nadal was, was starting to really get on kind of Medvedev's level from a returning perspective. And it was just who was going to play better tired? And Nadal had so many more tools to do that. Absolutely. It's... I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead, Joel. Go I've ahead. Rare, rarely, like admitted again, I'm going to harp on this again. I've, I don't think I've ever seen an elite player back off so many attackable balls. You know, so many attackable balls. So many times have I seen a guy hit a ball, what, within a, he's standing a foot or two behind the service line, hits a ball, and then retreats. And retreats. That really reminded me of, reminded me of people I see at, at parks and clubs who don't know how to approach. And you saw Medvedev so, so frequently uncertain of his transition skills. Ah, not getting a winner here. Back, back, back. <laughs> no. 
Well, the serving from both guys, especially first serve, was so surprisingly uneven in this match. Um, Danil had it going, uh, obviously, in the first set, but then, you know, both guys started dropping under 50% first serve in. in the, and it, it in occurred the to me. Set, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you can go set by set and you can see, oh, you know, Danil started getting it together again in the fourth set, but he lost that set. But um, Rafa's numbers in, in first serve were not where he would want them. And it, it just occurred to me that isn't it ironic that it's Rafa's clay court skills that are serving him on this surface, um, because this is one of those rare matches where the points are being won in long rallies, the pivotal points. And um, I think just looking at the stats, I think um, Medvedev won more points overall in the match mm -hmm. and um, won all of the rally categories except nine plus. I'm pretty sure Rafa um, nudged him in nine plus. Yes. So, I mean, it just, again, that's a, a tribute to Rafa and how he managed the important points. Well, I mean, there were, there were service games late in the match where he just, he just let Danil go uncontested um, because he knew what he had to do. Um, but Gil, did you want to talk about the mental and the emotional? I want to get at one other thing though with Nadal. It's okay. the combination. I think his, some of his, some of what we might call his clay but some of his forward movements. I mean, Nadal really, really controlled the geography of the court all over from the back, from the back to the front. I mean, he can't, you know, he came coming to net, controlling some of those points, doing some of that stuff. Um, I think that did it too. And even things, even some of the um, failed servant volley kind of planted seeds. Some of that helped him too. So it's just this way, it's kind of like, it's like a master class. It's like, hey, son, I want 20 of these things. I've won 20 of these things and, and, and I've won, I've won two at Wimbledon. I've been there three other times in the finals. You don't even want to know how many times he's done this on the clay in all sorts of ways of winning matches with all sorts of movement. So that, that takes in, Oh, you, you want legs. I'll show you legs. We'll, we'll go. You know, so all this stuff, it's like a master class. You know, I, 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 I haven't had time to uh, tag the match thoroughly yet, but um, it also just from my eye, it seemed to me that starting in the third set, Rafa started using his runaround forehand inside in more as opposed to inside out. You know, he loves that angle. Um, Daniel with his long limbs in the early in the match was just reading that perfectly but then Rafa really turned and started using inside in and that lower percentage shot um, but it was working and and I, I can't wait to tag the match and see if if that was as successful as I think it was and so what he's doing and I've, I've talked I've, I've talked to a lot of players about what is it the super geniuses the multi-slam guys what do they do that's a little different than the other ones. And what they do, they, they the match goes on, the, the, the less experienced one, you know, right, Medvedev was the less experienced, but he was kind of an X and O favorite. The, they get into the pattern. And in the first two sets, Medvedev, oh, here's the pattern. And you're going to try that inside out. I'm going to do this. And then the super geniuses, they do something. They bust the pattern. Yeah, they hit the one that's a little less, okay, just like Nadal has learned to hit the off forehand more in recent years. Now he's going the inside in forehand. And that doesn't just win you one point, that wins you like 20 more points because now, wait a second, he's doing that one too? And this, 
I thought this, I thought he had a game. Oh my God, his game is multidimensional. And then to get back to the slam, I always have this theory that each slam is kind of a multiplier. So one slam is one, but two is four and three is nine, four is 16. So in a way, 20 slams is like having a, a rating of 400. So it's this whole other thing. And I think you could see, and maybe this segues into the emotional, that Medvedev's head was beginning to explode. So the crowd was as pro Rafa as it gets. I mean, it was like, it was the same as what Federer had at 2019 Wimbledon. I mean, it was 95 to 99%. And um, I actually think the Australian Open crowd is probably worse than the Wimbledon crowd in terms of uh, etiquette. There's going to be more shenanigans in between first and second serve. Uh, the crowd did not hold back when Daniil Medvedev made key double faults in this match. It was uh, it was rowdy, even even on those kinds of mistakes. And you do wonder with that in combination with a lot of Medvedev's questionable shot selection, um, some of the more reckless looking net approaches, some of the uh, consistent attempts at at drop shotting when it just was failing spectacularly. Um, you know, what effect did the crowd have on maybe one Nadal's effort, which I, I don't really, we can talk about it, but it's kind of unwavering, but, you know, just Medvedev's focus and, and did it get to him? He certainly didn't handle it the way that any one of the big three would have. Um, he was really obsessed with the ball kids for a while in the middle of the match how many balls each ball kid was holding so that he could be set up to receive the balls that he needed for the next point i've never seen roger novak or rafa be obsessed to that level you know regarding something external like that um, one thing where I, I really thought that Medvedev was starting to lose it was when during the changeover, he had the extended conversation with the chair umpire trying to tell Blom how to do his job. Like, you've got to every single point, I don't care if you have to do it 25 times, you have to tell them, remind the crowd every single point. A couple times he referred to the crowd as idiots. And when that happened, I thought, I tried to envision Medvedev hoisting the trophy in front of people that he had just called idiots and I couldn't envision it. And I thought, this is, um, this is what is going to separate these two players. The Australians say about someone like that, he's keen to lose and Medvedev, he definitely did. That definitely did affect him. And he talked about that kind of at, at length, at length in his press conference. And that was clearly upsetting him. And He's got to address that. He's got to figure that one out. I mean, and the same thing happened to him when he was beating Sitsipas. When he got, when he was yelling at the umpire, you got to learn to do these things either rationally or not at all. I mean, and, and uh, I think that really subtracted from it. Now, again, this is, this is a real learning slam for him, hopefully. And we to see what he learns and what he takes away from that to kind of, because yeah, you start, you start getting into it with a chair and talking like that. The energy is not going in the right place. You got to think about Rafa. You got to catch your breath and think about what to do in these rallies rather than to get all obsessed about the, about the crowd and, and telling the chair what, what he has to say to the crowd. What, do, what are you going to produce what the chair is doing now and, and all that? I think, I think another approach, what, what about the old approach? Okay, can I get the supervisor, please? And just rationally talk about it. But he, 
he was he was very very upset by that and that infected him it's been all tournament long it was contentious in the curios match now that feels like 17 years ago so i'm i'm fuzzy on the details but i remember it was contentious in that one i i know we got a a, a visual obscenity warning obscenity warning and i'm not sure tv never showed it probably because it was an obscenity so i'm not sure exactly what he did but uh yeah he really lost it in in the tt pass match and you know the crowd did not like him and was very very ruthless to him and i i i come at it from two standpoints in one sense i i feel bad for him because that can't feel good and this isn't like another sport where you have teammates and you know the crowd is cheering against you because of the uniform you're wearing this is, this is your name. This is Daniil Medvedev that they're cheering against. So I think it's very personal in tennis, and I think it, it's hard um, for, for a crowd to be as against you as they were Medvedev. On the other hand, he's done things that, that are going to turn a crowd against you every single time. And the way he treats umpires is going to be off-putting to many, many people. He, it's not just that he argues calls. He is disrespectful to the umpires in a, in a way that is very off-putting. Um, and it's something that I've never seen Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal do. I've seen them argue with the chair umpires, but it gets personal with Daniil in a way that it really doesn't have to. So in a way, Joel, you said it's a learning, a learning tournament for him. I think what the lesson should be for him, and I don't know if he gets this or not, um, or if he will get this or not, but I think the learning opportunity needs to be, how do I prevent turning a crowd against me like this in the future? That's part of it. But it's also, I think in a way, crowd schmout, how do I manage myself? You know what I mean? It's like, the crowd, yeah. you're going to play these three and, and it's going to, and it, particularly Federer and Nadal, but Novak too, the crowds, these are the icons. That's the terms, these are the icons of the sport. So you're going to play them don't expect the crowd to just focus on your deal and maintain your tranquility, interact with the umpire appropriately, and don't get into the whole with having had the crowd, what am I going to do? And, and, and find this, there's a certain, what find your own level of authenticity. But when he gives this kind of sneers, sneers to the crowd, when he double faults and, and lets that affect him, that's not good. Yeah. That's not good. He needs, he needs someone like our, uh, like our buddy, Jeff Greenwald, Amy, don't you think? Yeah, well, we could all use him as a little angel on the shoulder, you know, going through the routines um, and the uh, little psychological techniques that you can use to refocus what you have to focus on. But look, it's easier said than done. That's true. I'm never having played in front of more than about, uh, you know, 27 people. <laughs> I'm not quite, yeah, I'm not quite sure. And I don't think I've ever been... Uh, I've never had people except my opponents boo at me. <laughs> I also have never experienced that. Um, but we have experienced YouTube comments, which which might be a little taste of it, no? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, actually, um, I, I'm working on something in my own game right now. I, I'm a tall player, and um, I play against a couple of players that any time the ball is hit to me when I'm at the net, and it looks like I might have a sitter or an easy volley or something like that, they scream, oh, no. Um, which is technically a hindrance. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'm getting really aggravated by it. But my coach is saying, like, you got to just get over it. Like, quit, quit, 
whining, quit complaining, and really work on some techniques to be able to block that out or ignore it and not be upset by it after the fact. Like, let's say you miss the sitter, like don't immediately point the finger of blame. Um, So it is something that can be worked on. There are some, you know, proven techniques. Martina Navratilova has this great, told me this great thing when she says in tennis, there are really only two things you can control, your toss and your attitude. (laughs) That's great. I like it. Uh, Nadal now at at 21, he takes the lead. Um, what what does this mean for Djokovic? I mean, I think obviously now the stakes are raised for Roland Garros in, in a couple of ways. But also, I can't help but think, you know, the more they tussle, the longer their careers are going to be. Like, I truly believe that they have pushed each other to the heights that that they've pushed each other. And I think without the two of them, none of them would be at 20. I truly believe that. And I know that there's a school of thought. Well, they, they fought with each other and took each other's slams, but you know, you look at Pete Sampras, he was good. He, he had what he needed. He stopped. He was, he, he had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. Right. And that ended his career. No, what ended his career is that he was tired. It he was tired. He didn't well, set out to win more slams than anyone. He set out to be well, the last night and he was just, he was just kind of worn out from the work, but he was he didn't have anything else to do. He, he, right. I mean, he was content with his career and what, what more did he have to try to achieve? Another, well, well, the case could be made. He didn't retire immediately after that O2 US Open when he, and there was talk about, hmm, you're going to go back to Wimbledon where he had two frustrating losses the prior two years and do it again. So he, he, so he, then he finally retired, but for him, he didn't have, he, he had, he had, put in enough of his time. He had felt tired by it all. That's what it was. It wasn't quite, like none of our three have reached that stage of being tired of it yet. That's how, 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 how can you be tired when you're trying to, you're trying to do this. You're trying to win this. Well, Gil, we're not doing a show about Pete Sampras. <laughs> There's a reason why I, we're not. <laughs> right. Right. But, I, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't know. Do you agree with me, Amy? Or, yes. Or, I I don't, Sampras is not my favorite player. That's my point. Like these three are a cut above in my opinion. Um, But I I just wanted to slightly tag along this. Um, Both Djokovic and Federer um, almost immediately sent out congratulatory messages on social media to Rafa, which was really classy. And for Novak, that had to have been hard to do that. So, you know, bravo. But something that Roger wrote in his congratulatory message he said, um, I'm honored to play a role in pushing you to achieve more as you have done for me the past 18 years. So it really is a nod to um, all three of us and, and how um, our greatness has contributed to each of the others. Are you going to send us tweets like that, Amy, when we, you know, <laughs> us three, when pushing, you know, when we're. That's what I'm <laughs> saying. I believe that though. I believe that very strongly. I don't think that's a, a trope or a cliche. I, I truly believe they've all made each other better. And, and that's part of why they have fended off this, you know, younger generation for so long is because they've all pushed each other. Those, these three have pushed each other. So hard. that's it. The competition, this is maybe where you're getting at something in a way of what, who else is really necessarily pushing Sampras in the way. So I'll leave Sampras aside, but we'll go back to these three. You're right. The three of them, have constantly kind of upped it for each other. And now Nadal, hey, for the first time in 13 years, he's won the first year's first major. 
And oh, guess what the next major is? Well, well, well. <laughs> we'll always have yep. parrots. I mean, <laughs> here we are. And that's kind of interesting because obviously the talk the last few years, because Novak has been such the, 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 the man of Melbourne that he's the guy who's had the discussion around, can he actually take all four? And now it's like, wait a second. Do you mean to tell me that there's a reasonable chance Nadal could head to Wimbledon with two of these things? Because no, no one's going to say the soon to be 36 year old Nadal. Oh, well, Novak won Roland Garros last year. So he's got to be the, the big favorite. I mean, We'll see how the injuries and the clay court and the health things, but no, it's going to take a lot for Nadal not to be considered at least one of the two favorites to win Roland Garros. And oh, by the way, for Wimbledon, there is some talk that Federer may play Wimbledon this year. So wouldn't that be great? I mean, the three of us will be like broadcasting every, every three hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. No, but all right. Well, Federer, we're hoping to just see kind of surface given where he's at, but, uh, but Rafa, I mean, I think this is just a, this is so, it's so surprising. I mean, I have to admit that I, I, yeah. did, not, I did not think, you know, we were looking for, I was looking for Nadal for, for an effort, some health to leave here. If he loses, that's fine, but not to leave here and, uh, um, you know, with an injury. Well, I think what we have to acknowledge now is that Nadal is one of the greatest hardcore players in tennis history. He now has moved to over 500 wins on hardcore where he joins Federer, Djokovic, and Agassi. So as hard as it is to believe or the way that people have a narrative that Nadal is just a great clay quarter, this proves for once and for all that that's not true. I, I, I never, I, well, they can say that. Yeah. Nobody should think, nobody should have ever thought that. I thought, I thought, I thought like 10 years ago that Nadal had already, you know, he, and now he's, he'd already won four, he's won the U S open four times. He'd won this once. So prior to this, he'd won five hardcore majors and he won plenty of titles on hardcore, such as Indian Wells and others. So anyone who thought of Nadal that way is kind of, kind of stuck in about, is it what about 2005? (laughs) I think what I was trying to get out originally is I think that this will motivate Novak because he's going back to chasing. And I think that was a a position that he felt very comfortable in. And it was a position that, that really, I, I think he embraced. Yes. I think this could be really good for Novak. I'm going to say it right now. Um, (laughs) He needs motivation. He's had dips in his, in his long storied career and life. And and some of it relates to the personal and some of it relates to who he is as an athlete. And he's somebody who thrives on motivation. So I, I actually think this is a good thing and it's very exciting. And I, hope that he's able to play Roland Garros. I really do. I would love to see that. And I'd love to see a rematch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and vaccination uh, guidelines are are also still up in the air. And that's something that we'll have to continue to follow as well. What's the moment, and let's end on this, what's the moment from from this final that will stay with you, Joel? Oh, it just came to my head. I think of that two, three, love 40 phase. I like seeing, um, to me, matches revolve around the scoring system, the situation down in distance and the, and someone 
fighting through, having their fingers on the ledge. I mean, that, that to me is a moment, is the moments that really takes away. And then there's a macro moment. And I know that there's bigger things about mm-hmm. what it means, but I mean, I'm, I'm zeroing in on something, a plot point. Two, three, love 40. For me, it is the very small window of time in the fifth set when he was, Nadal was serving for the match the first time and he double faulted and then Medvedev broke him. And then he has to get up from that and rally from that and, and come back and break again and then serve for the match again. And I think that's what greatness is made of. And it's about taking a punch to the gut and then getting up off the floor and how do you react to that and um that's what i think medvedev has to do going forward this was a punch to the gut for him um he can look at how rafa handled those last few games of the match and um use that as inspiration that was mine amy i thought that was incredible my backup i guess will be how the forehand single-handedly in that three, four game where Nadal broke to end up serving for the fifth set. That was an incredible forehand game. And it ended on this beautiful on the run down the line forehand winner, which I thought could be, you know, the, the iconic shot that broke the the fifth set in Nadal's favor. And then we ended up uh, playing a lot more tennis after that, but um, that's, you know, one of the great weapons in the history of the sport. We talked about it with in, in the last show with Berrettini having to go up against it. And I thought that game was a, uh, was a good example. So Rafael Nadal has done it. He's beaten Daniil Medvedev in the Australian open final. And we've really enjoyed covering this event. And, you know, from the, from the start to the finish, it was quite the adventure. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.